Welcome to the Fat Tail Investment Podcast. Got a very special guest today, and I'm thrilled to have him on. He's the author of this book, which you can't see if you're listening on Spotify, but it's called Central Banking 101 by Joseph Wang, who's a, a former Fed trader. So he actually worked for the US Federal Reserve, um, which is not many people who are out in public uh, that are available to, to, to chat about that. Um, central banks, there's a whole... <laughs> Well, a mountain of material that's written about them every week because they they move the markets and they're what they're doing with interest rates and and QE and QT, uh, their balance sheet uh, policies um, that people talk about. So what's happening now this year is very important for the financial markets. So the central banks were caught out by the inflation situation. They're now yanking up interest rates. That's what caused the market to to drive down into the June low. There's been a rally in the last month on the expectation that those interest rates um, rises won't be as aggressive as everybody previously thought. Well, is that the case? Well, Joseph said, no, that's not the case, that the, the pressure is still on the central banks to keep raising rates, and this rally is misjudged. Um, and interesting to me that the two algos that we have at Fat Tail uh, are still warning that the that the markets are in uh, red mode. So they're, as far as they're concerned, the risks are still high. And by implication, Joseph is saying the same thing. So I thought I'd get hold of him, and he was gracious enough to give his time. He's in Estonia, of all places, uh, traveling the world and trading the markets, I presume, from his laptop and uh, keeping abreast of things over there. So we talk about how the market's structured at the moment, um, and what he thinks is happening. We talk a little bit about his experience at the Fed and how they view not only the markets, but uh, specifically gold and Bitcoin. And then we touch a little bit about the future of policy and what he expects to happen with the financial system uh, going forward. So it was very interesting and I'm thrilled to share it with you. So here he is, Joseph Wang, AKA the Fed guy. So Joseph, for the podcast today, I thought we would break it down into three sections. One, we'll talk about the market now. Two, we'll talk about your experience at the Fed. And then we'll talk uh, the final bit, a little bit about the future. Does that sound okay? Sounds good. All right. So let's set the scene. Uh, the Fed, we had the COVID crisis. They came in, created, uh, dropped interest rates, created lots of money, uh, you know, tried to keep things stable. Mm, from your view, when did things start to go wrong? Where they had this previous forecast that the, the rates would stay low and uh, it was fine, then inflation, the war in Ukraine flared up. So from just to sort of bring us to where we are today, where, where did all this uh, volatility and difficulty and um, concerns around inflation and rate rises start to, start to really come to the fore for you? So... When I think about what caused inflation, I think that the Fed plays a role in that and determines interest rates. But you have to keep in mind that it's a lot more than what the Fed does. There's also the fiscal side as well. So when the, when the government spends money and finances it by printing treasuries, in many ways, it's just printing money and paying for it. And that's obviously inflationary. Uh, this is kind of special to the US government because the way that the world works the financial markets work, treasuries are very safe assets. So if you think about a $100 bill in currency, um, a treasury is basically like a $100 bill that pays interest. You can easily sell it 
in the market or borrow against it in the repo. So when you do massive deficit spending, you're basically printing money and buying things. So that is very inflationary, and that's beyond the control of the Fed. The Fed largely controls interest rates, which has a big impact on certain sectors of the economy, like housing. So in the U.S., our housing boom, where we had 20% year-over-year increases in prices, that's largely yep. the Fed. Financial assets as well, very sensitive to the Fed. But real economy inflation, at least what we've seen in the past, let's say, decade, when we've had basically zero rates in QE for a long time post the great financial crisis, doesn't really respond that well to, to the Fed part of uh, interest rates and QE. The markets do, but the real economy don't, doesn't. When I saw that the real economy was going to be massively stimulated by fiscal spending uh, with uh, administrations basically continual fiscal stimulus bills, giving people checks and hugely subsidizing a whole lot of other things, and then my suspected that there would be a lot of inflation. Um, so the Fed didn't seem to understand that, and at least they were strongly anchored to the regime that we had in the post-GFC world, where uh, it seemed like no matter what happened, we would always have low and stable inflation. Mm-hmm. Now. When I saw that there was enormous fiscal stimming, that's when I suspected that things will begin to, um, well, something has really changed and things probably wouldn't be as they were before. Because what we've seen is not what would happen uh, in the past. We've never had such large fiscal spending, at least in the U.S., as what happened in 2021, 2020. Um, so when inflation started to creep up, I think that caught the Fed off guard and they weren't sure how to respond. There may have been political aspects as well. Because at the time, in 2021, the administration continued to want to pass and basically a Green New Deal, even more fiscal spending. And you know what? It's difficult to do that when inflation is high. And so you have to tell everyone that it's transitory. And maybe some people in the Fed bought into that. Now, because the Fed was caught off guard with rising inflation and publicly proclaimed that inflation was transitory when it turned out to be anything but it's now in a position where it really has to catch up. And that's a very difficult thing to do because the Fed wants to do things in a slow and measured rate. So in the past, post-GFC, they've always wanted to raise interest rates by 25 basis points at a time. Now they're maxing out basically doing 75 basis points at a time. And that, I think, catches the market off guard and increases lots of volatility because you're suddenly shifting so you're suddenly doing some aggressively raising interest rates. And what that does is that mechanically, it reduces the market value of a lot of uh, fixed income, which in turn feeds into other markets like equities. So when, you, when you're aggressively trying to turn the tanker, you, you're going to break things. And so I think that's some of the volatility we've seen earlier in the year. Um, well, just seeing off there, so we, we here in Australia, we, we've all got caught up in it. We've seen the bonds sell off and equities sell off. Things seem to have stabilised now, and you wrote a post recently where you think that the market is is now pricing, or not that you think of, that they are pricing in rate cuts to come, but that's too premature. So this sort of rally that we've seen in the in stocks over the last month or so, I guess your view then is that is misplaced. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. So I think the market is not very good at regime shifts. So if you think what was happening 
right after the financial crisis, the market was always pricing that the Fed in a couple of years would take interest rates, let's say three or 4%. And as we know, that never happened because we were in a different regime. Rates were going to stay low for a number of years. Now, it seems that the market still thinks that we're in that same playbook where rates are going to stay low and the Fed is going to cut at any, at any time to try to stimulate the economy. So what, what the market doesn't seem to understand is that the Fed's reaction function has changed significantly with the advent of inflation. The Fed's mandate is full employment and price stability. It's not positive economic growth. Now, usually positive economic growth is related to the other two mandates. So before COVID, we had a world where inflation was low and you know unemployment was, was, was okay. So what the Fed would often do is often cut rates to try to get economic growth up so that inflation would go higher and unemployment would go lower. That was their playbook. So when you fast forward to today, because we have high inflation, what the Fed really needs, and the Fed has very publicly made the case that um, inflation is their number one goal and full employment is subservient to that goal, that tells you that there's less of a trade-off between having a recession between employment and inflation. So usually what happens is that there's a trade-off between these two mandates. If, I, if the Fed tries to fight inflation by raising rates, then unemployment goes higher. So they miss on that mandate. Now, if they lower rates to stimulate the economy, then unemployment goes lower, but usually that also boosts inflation. So there's a trade-off there. What they're telling you now is there's no trade-off between the two mandates. Inflation is the only thing that matters. And inflation here most recently was at 9% CPI. So because of the reemergence of inflation, the Fed is not going to go to that old playbook it used to have, even though we may technically be in a recession. The reason being is that it's not about unemployment anymore. It's about inflation. And what you need to get inflation lower actually is actually is um, higher unemployment and a recession. So this seems to be a regime change that the market actually hasn't caught on. The Fed is going to have to keep rates higher than it usually does. Um, I think Powell was trying to tell that in his recent presser. What he said was that he needed the economy to be below growth potential for two years and unemployment to go a bit higher. You know, that that's kind of a weird thing to say, right? But, you know, that's basically telling you that they want to have somewhat of a recession, hopefully a mild one. And that's what's necessary to get inflation back under the control. And are you of the view that inflation has peaked? I feel that that has sort of come into the bond market. Um, but it's is- possible that it's peaked. I, I'm, I, I don't know. It's possible that it's peaked. But to me, that's not really the point. The point is that, so I think inflation comes down when people can no longer afford higher prices. If you look at the data, people can afford much higher prices. In the US, wages on average are growing about 5% a year. And if you have 5% wage growth, obviously you're not gonna get 2% inflation, which is the Fed's target. You can't. You probably can't support 9% inflation indefinitely, but you can easily support you know, at least 5% inflation, which is still far above target. If you look at uh, bank lending, it's on fire. Uh, year over year, it's growing at 10%. So that's new money that's being created. And if you have all that money being created, people can afford higher prices. You look at the wealth effect the Fed has created. Now the stock market has come down a bit, but it's still much higher than it was pre-COVID in the US. 
people who own homes have about, um, you know, have a price appreciation about 20 to 30%. So they can afford higher prices. So in order to make sure that they cannot afford higher prices, rates have to be a bit higher. Now, the recent pivot that you've seen price into the market has basically undid a lot of that impact on, on wealth. You see the S&P rebounding again. You see um, mortgage rates coming down again, and you see commodities rebounding. So uh, that paradoxically makes the Fed's job harder and means that they're going to have to talk tougher to the markets. On Friday, Kashkari, a uh, person in Kashkari. I saw that was, in the New York Times. Yeah. <laughs> on that point about uh bank lending in my view or what i have read is from 2012 to about 2016 the fed was doing qe right and a lot of people came out and said oh the money supply is exploding inflation's going to go up buy gold protect yourself but what uh, behind the scenes what nobody understood was that the bank credit creation was low because of the after effects of the shock right so they actually sort of the QE was offsetting the contraction in, in bank lending. Now, you just alluded to bank lending going very high, but we have what's called quantitative tightening going on. Is it possible that a similar dynamic will happen where even though the banks are creating lots of money, the Fed is trying to withdraw it? What's, do you think they need to accelerate uh, quantitative tightening or, or the path that they have right now is we'll do that so- as, as it is? You're exactly right about the point of um, what happened post-GFC. Post-GFC, the banks could not lend because they were basically on the brink of insolvency. The money supply was contracting. And one of the things the Fed did to help with that was to do QE, and that made sure the money supply did not shrink. Now, right now, we're on the cusp of doing more QT, and the banks are creating a lot of credit. If you look at the data, the forces are actually balancing out. So it's money supply is not contracting, but it's not increasing anymore. Uh, as we go into full QT in September, when the Fed will start trying to roll out, uh, roll off its balance sheet, a target of $95 billion a month, that's probably going to overwhelm the bank credit creation and cause the money supply to contract. Um, so overall, though, I, I would impress upon the point that I alluded to earlier that treasury securities are a type of money in the financial system. And so when you're doing QT, you're, you're not necessarily contracting the money supply in so, in so much as you're changing the composition of it. So you have fewer money that's held in banks, but more money in the form of treasuries. So that has an impact more on financial markets because when you have more treasuries, interest rates go higher. Um, so that that usually prices has an impact on the rest of the, the market complex. And what to make, um, as my understanding, the yield curve is inverted at the moment in the US. Is that correct? That's, that's correct. So I, it seems like there's a lot of people in the financial markets who see that we have a technical recession and the impulse to buy when you see recession seems to be to buy bonds because the Fed is imminently going to cut and because we'll have terrible economic data. But again, for context, nominal GDP is growing, you know, about nine, ten percent. Inflation is about nine percent. So we're in a very different world than we were uh, in the past decade. Where, let's say, it made sense to immediately buy bonds when we have a recession, because prices are still high, and the Fed, by all indications, is going to continue to tighten. So, again, 
back to my point, markets don't seem to be very good at regime changes. And it seems to me that we are in one right now. Some people say that like, this is dumb, like raising interest rates doesn't solve what they perceive to be the inflation problem from supply chain issues and you know commodities spiking through the Russia situation. Do you think that the Fed is doing the right thing to, to rein in inflation with rate hikes in QT? So that's a really good question. I hear that a lot. So raising rates won't increase the supply of oil or grains or houses, so why do it? So Governor Waller on the Fed responded to that by saying that, well, the Fed's mandate is you know, stable prices, not stable prices contingent upon it not being a supply shock. So from their perspective, it doesn't matter. But I actually think they're correct here, because when we see that the Fed raising rates, what we saw was the commodities complex basically tumble. We have oil, uh, grains, metals, all basically just fall off a cliff as the Fed was tightening aggressively. That tells me that raising rates does work, in part because so much of the commodity complex is financialized. <laughs> sure uh, is. So, listen, so there's a difference between the paper market and the physical market, where in the physical market, from all accounts, in crude oil, it's still very tight. But because the paper market is so much bigger than the physical market, and the paper market is sensitive to interest rates, you can tank the paper market when you raise interest rates and through a connection between paper and physical, lower the physical price as well. So it does work. I've got a friend who's been on the podcast. Oh, friend is probably a bit of a stretch, but a colleague, associate, whatever you want. He's a fund manager. He's put forward the case that the Fed will have to go Japanese in this. And he feels that, and this may be part of the market pricing now, is that the US government deficit is so large now that any rise in you know uh, interest rates just cranks up the interest rate bill. And it's it's because the world's so saturated in debt that they, they can't afford to let rates rise as they may have done in the past and that that will force the Fed to step in and try and cap the rate in some way. Do you give any credence to that view? I would make a difference between public and private debt. So there's enormous public and private debt. Public debt is debt issued by the government, and that's never an issue of affordability. At the end of the day, the Fed can buy it. If you have a fiat-based currency where the government can print, government debt is never a problem. Um, 100 years ago, when we were on the gold standard, that could be a problem because you can't print gold. But today, uh, if you just look at Japan, for example, uh, Japan, they are trying to control their 10-year their interest rate to ceiling, put a ceiling on it at 25 basis points. And they just print and, uh, and, and buy as many Japanese bonds as they want to support that. And you can do the same thing in the US as well. So public debt is never a problem if you are on a fiat system. Private debt can be a problem because corporations can't print money. But I would also point to the fact that we have very high inflation. When you have high inflation, you have high revenues and you're coming from a world where interest rates are very low. So a lot of the people took loans at basically generationally low interest rates and now their revenues are inflating. So it seems to me that it'd be easy for them to afford higher rates going forward. Um, I mean, another way to look at this is real interest rates. When you take nominal, let's say price increases in a, into account, real rates are still very low, um, around zero. So I think that the private sector, private sector could also afford higher rates. 
Now, it does depend. In the US, for example, uh, we have 30, 30 year mortgages, and mm -hmm. almost everyone is locked in at generously low rates. So, you know, they could easily afford their mortgage, which is going to be eaten away by inflation. Yeah, that's uh, another factor. We'll circle back to negative rates in a little bit. Um, just one final point on the overall structure. The US dollar is uh, roaring higher in the global market. Is that not also a problem? Do you think the Fed is looking at that? The Fed is intentionally making the dollar stronger. And Powell has been very clear about that in his congressional testimony. One of the ways that he wants to tame inflation is a stronger dollar. The way this works, though, isn't the way that you would conventionally think. So conventionally, in textbooks, you would think that um, a stronger currency means that when we import stuff from other countries, it becomes cheaper. But that's not how the U.S. dollar works. The U.S. dollar is the world's uh, reserve currency. It's also the currency of international trade. So almost everything is invoiced in dollars. Um, for example, if you're a Japanese company and you're buying something from a Thai company, odds are it's going to be invoiced in dollars. So whether or not the dollar is strong or not doesn't actually impact the uh, the import costs of the U.S. because everything was always priced in dollars and invoiced in dollars. What it does, though, is it has a tremendous impact on other countries. If you're Japan, you're importing oil. Oil is priced in dollars, and a strong dollar means oil is a lot more expensive to you. So what that means is that you actually have to consume less oil. It destroys your demand and so makes commodity prices come down. And that's kind of a crisis you see uh, throughout the emerging markets. Stronger dollar making a lot of basic things, uh, basic commodities for them unaffordable. They have to cut consumption and that lowers global inflation by reducing commodity demand. So it, it helps in US inflation, but not in the way that I think is commonly thought. Mm. No, that's that's very true. All right, just pause there for a second, and we'll and we'll just talk about your experience. So you worked at the Fed on the the New York desk. That's right, yeah. Yes, that's and, right. Uh, what period was that? Um, twenty sixteen to twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one. So just for the curious, because we always hear about the Fed and the uh, the mis mystery moves they make. How did it work in the day? Like, uh, so uh, I'm trying to think. Was Janet Yellen the chair then? Uh, probably. Uh, you know, she would sit down with the the, the board and, and work out the interest rate, and then what it would come through to your. I presume you had some sort of head trader or whatever, and then you were given some sort of budget to to spend in the market. Well, you tell me, how did it work? <laughs> <laughs> so I worked on the open market desk, and that's the Fed's trading desk. And what we do on the open market desk is one, we figure out what's happening in the markets, and two, we we conduct monetary policy for for the first part. So um, we have a trading desk like any any other. Everyone has a Bloomberg terminal. We have you know TV, CNBC on online. So if something happens in the markets, our job is to create a report and to brief policymakers uh, in the Federal Reserve System what's happening in the markets and um, what, what what why do you think that's happening? The way we go about doing this, let's say uh, something crashes, when we go and talk with people throughout the markets. The Fed has relationships through basically through all the big banks, all the big dealers, all the big investment funds, um, and all the foreign central banks. So we would reach out to them, see their perspective. We also have enormous amounts of confidential data that is a regulator of, of banks and dealers. So we'd be able to get a lot of confidential data that no one else can see. And based on what we hear from um, our sources and based on what we see in the data, 
we would compile report and we would present that uh, to the uh, to senior policymakers. From a daily routine standpoint, is every morning there's a call between the trading desk and the board of governors at the Federal Reserve, who basically holds all the power and monetary policy about what's happening in the markets um, and answer any questions that they may have. And that's the first part. Uh, the second part has to do with conducting monetary policy. So when you're talking about people doing QE or doing repo trades, or um, let's say FX swap, that's all done by the open markets desk. So in March of uh, 2020, when everything was falling, it was us that was buying like a trillion dollars a month in securities. Um, and when you say us, so, I mean, you, are you putting on- The open market trade? desk. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, the open market desk. Yes, that's us. Oh, I, I, I did the repo stuff. So like the reverse repo facility, uh, that, that's me. So we have $2 trillion, uh, $2.2 trillion, that, that would be me. And this might be a silly question, but obviously normally a trader has got a risk of loss and that type of thing. But when they're sort of just creating money and they have this endless thing to do it, are you held accountable for the results of those trades when you're sort of told, look, you've got to go do this? No. It's it's different for the public sector. The public sector doesn't have a PL and we're not trying to make money. What we're doing, we're basically a huge utility, like an electricity company. We're making sure the markets function. There is no PL, it it doesn't matter. So we when the market is destabilized, for example, uh, the Fed just goes and buys things to add liquidity. It's not trying to make money, it's just trying to make sure the market functions. Um yeah, it's kind of cool because you know when you do the trades, the zeros are nine zeros, and that's like that's that's the, that's the minimum that you get nine zeros, a billions, billions. So um, they're big numbers. And I guess, but as a trade, I guess you just got paid a, a standard wage. Then, if you can't make money, then yeah. there's no bonus, there's no yeah, incentive to carry so on like a pork chop, like some do. It depends on the central bank. So for for the Fed, yes, we make a salary. There are other central banks where they will do some. A little bit of discretionary stuff um very very small because central banks are very very uh, risk averse um the bank of england for example would have uh, some a little bit of discretionary stuff and how they invest their foreign portfolios and you know, maybe that helps a little bit but uh, it's it's not a very exciting desk because you can't invest in many things it's very risk risk conscious are very low into there's a school of thought or a pool of people who who hold the Fed and love to bash it up and and view the people there as clueless academics and economic economists rather and who you know maybe have no real world experience and live in this bubble uh do you give any credence to that view or do you think the Fed overall does a pretty good job in a you know difficult situation well, I mean, inflation's at 9%, so it's hard to say they're doing a good job. Um, so, <laughs> so, but to be fair, I think it's it's high everywhere. So I think what people, so I came from the private sector to the Fed, and what surprised me the most is how so many people with big titles basically didn't really know anything. It, the titles were basically honorary, kind of like, a, you know, you give someone who's really smart an honorary doctorate. Um, and I didn't understand why until thinking about it. So when you have, when you're in government, you're basically a business that can't fail, run by people who can't get fired. And in this dynamic, you know, everything changes. 
you can't you cannot distinguish yourself by doing good work because you there are no performance metrics there's no revenue there's no pnl uh, everything comes down to tenure and relationships um what ultimately happens is that the people who, who got in first basically they accumulate all the power through tenure and you know if you accumulate all the power and you can't get fired you, you basically end up owning the agency so you kind of basically take care of your friends and all the people that you know and so forth and whether or not you do a good job that really doesn't matter because one you can't get fired and, and two the company can't fail it changes everything and you see that not just i mean this is normal in any public organization and we see that throughout history and throughout agencies so i i think it performs exactly as you would expect given the incentives but there are good people that are trying to go do a good job just to be clear but you know, if you structure, again, you can't get fired, and your company can't fail. There's the incentive structure doesn't isn't there to 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 try to do a good job. Does that make it more difficult to trade then, in your view, in that you you never quite know what they're going to do because they're maybe steering a ship that they don't really know what they're doing. Uh, that makes sense. So it actually creates tremendous opportunity because if you understood what was happening in 2020, 2021, where we would have large inflation simply because the, the fiscal side was printing, spending so much money, and you saw that the Fed was not able to pick up on that, then you could have had tremendous opportunity to basically bet against that. So um, to me, though, everyone makes mistakes. Um, but the Fed is very transparent in what it does. And I think that's the most important thing. Being transparent makes it predictable. So Jay Powell will go and give speeches and try to answer your questions at the press conference. So they're very transparent in how they approach it and what they're going to do. And you can, what you need to see, think is to realize that they're not always right. Maybe they're often wrong and you can position uh, with that in mind. So, um, it it uh it makes is that is there a reason that you left? Yeah. Um. So, like I mentioned before, it's your at the Fed. You're judged by your tenure, not by what you can do. And I just didn't want to do that anymore. So we have a you know we have a pension. We vest in five years. I vested, and so I left. Okay. All right. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the future of the monetary system, right? So, first of all, from your view. Do you think Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are here to stay? And from the institutional view, was the rise of cryptocurrencies a major issue for the Fed or was it just something that they felt that they had to comment about, but they basically viewed it as this, you know, stupid thing that people were trading? Yeah, so I can tell you because from my experience, so everything the Fed is interested in with regard to financial markets goes through the open markets desk. So I can tell you that they're really not interested in Bitcoin at all. So the <laughs> Fed, control, Fed controls the US dollar system, right? Yeah, that's, and Bitcoin is a very, just a very small thing that had in the financial system. It's like the US army, are they afraid of some uprising in Springfield? No, they're, they're not really afraid of that, right? They, they control the dollar system. It's vast, super powerful. The Fed is not really concerned about that. But um, they do think that cryptocurrencies and the rise of all this other stuff um, seems to be generating a lot of attention and may potentially have financial stability implications. And so they're thinking into regulating that. So that's, in my view, the biggest hurdle in, 
in the growth of these cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and altcoins, is that the government is eventually going to try to have more control over this. And they do have the ability to control it. If you look at what happened in China, the country wants the country wants to shut down, well, then it's gone. And the same thing can happen in any other country. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a ban. They can just say, we're going to regulate this. Everyone who trades in this reports to the IRS, and I want to make sure that you're paying your taxes. That itself would have a huge chilling effect. And so I think there are headwinds from the public sector for, for the growth of those cryptocurrencies, especially so, since that the government wants to have their own cryptocurrency too. And usually they don't like to have competition. In I, I would, yeah, I tend to think the same. So in this sense, though, do you give, do you understand the people who advocate for Bitcoin that go, there's just this uh, explosion in uh, fiat currency, credit creation, you know, you've got these, these bumbling bureaucracies sort of lurching from one disaster to another. Do you understand the people that think that it would be an alternative or a viable alternative? I understand the lore of having uh, a sort of value outside the control of government. That is especially important after what we saw happen in Canada. Justin Trudeau basically confiscated the bank accounts of people who disagreed with them. That's very concerning. Overall, the tendency seems to be towards more authoritarianism. And if the government controls the banking sector, then they can kind of silence any dissent. That's very dangerous. And of course, it opens the door to tremendous mismanagement where we could have government printing money and spending at terrible projects, causing inflation, which we already see in the US. So I understand the lore of that. Uh, what I think is, what I think though, is that, you know, there are ways to express that concern and some of them are more vulnerable than others. I think expressing it in anything electronic that, that, has to, that is closely tied to the banking system to be able to function, because you need these onboarding ramps, like uh, exchanges for people to put fiat in and get yep. cryptocurrency out, that, 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 that's a vulnerable system in my view. So I don't know if anyone has developed that a better system yet. I think there are coins like Monero, uh, untraceable, very difficult. Maybe that has more potential. Um, but it's, there's definitely a tremendous need for our store of value um, that is beyond the reach of government. And what, I don't know part, if we have that yet. Part of the appeal of Bitcoin also applies to gold then. I mean, do, again, the same question. Do, does the Fed care what the gold price is? Um, you know, some people say they want to suppress it or because it signals, you know, instability or inflation. You think all those are just conspiracy theories or? So I, when we brief the, uh, the Fed board about things that are happening in the markets. We never talk about gold. It's it's just <laughs> something no one cares about. Like I said, it's like the U.S. Army are they afraid of pirates in Somalia? No, no, because Dalitism is just so much stronger than anything else. That don't really think about these other things, which are comparatively speaking very very small. Um, gold can be a good store of value, but. If you look at what happened to gold the past couple of years, inflation is very high. Gold prices are going down tremendously. Um, it doesn't seem to be working as you would expect. So maybe there's something that either the market hasn't realized yet or the people who buy gold haven't realized yet. Interesting. So I've got your book here, I read. So you do you... How do you make your living now? Is it through writing, subscriptions, trading, oh, I tr doing other trading stuff? the markets? Trading the markets uh, is where I get most of my income. Um, 
And are you trading like fixed income unit or you trade uh, shares? I or trade everything. Yeah. I trade everything. Um, so the way that I look at it is this whole year has been about macro. And if you understand what the Fed is doing and what its concerns and reaction functions are, you would have done really well. So, so I'm thinking here at this point, you were short bonds or, or something along those lines or no? So, uh, so heading into the beginning of the year, you market was going on all-time highs, bond prices, bond yields are very low. It was very clear that the Fed's reaction would be to be very hawkish. And so if you were selling equities, if you were, so if you get the Fed right, rates are going to go higher, then naturally you have to get a few other things right. You have to get the FX right, dollar was strengthened. You get equities right, they're going to tank. And you get parts of the bond curve right, so rates are going to go higher. So everything that, every all that happened, what I've been caught flat-footed is how aggressively the longer-term rates have gone lower. Although I think that is a mistake and it will reverse in time. So from my perspective, again, biggest impact on financial assets is the Fed. If you go and understand that, then you know how the market would behave. Um, right now, we're at another turning point where, in my view, it seems like the Fed is being misunderstood. And so that presents new opportunities. And just as a general thing, like with your trades, would you take a, a you know, day trade or a couple of weeks or it takes a month or two on a time no, frame it, basis? Is there a yeah, consistency yeah. in what you're doing? Uh, yes, I, I think I... So it's it's not it's not day trading. I put on a position, wait for it to fall into place. If things if I if things change, take it off. If things have gone good enough, then I take it off as well. Take profits. So, you know, it's not a science to me. It's more of an art. Do you think um, the Fed? I mean, it wasn't a ringing endorsement that you gave earlier, but do you think they've lost credibility? in an important way recently by saying that inflation was transitory and now they're viewed to be behind the curve. And do you think that will damage it or is it just, it's so powerful that it can just blunder through the forest like a big elephant. And it's like, you've just got to put up with what we trample through. <laughs> so that's a very elaborate talking. metaphor, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> um, so I actually think that credibility doesn't really matter. So I'll tell you why people think, if you're a textbook economist, you think Fed credibility is really important because Fed credibility is what keeps inflation expectations anchored. If the people believe the Fed is credible, then their expectations are anchored. And why do we care about inflation expectations? Because text, on a textbook basis, uh, inflation expectations affect real inflation. If you expect prices to go higher tomorrow, then you're buy things today, and that pushes up inflation immediately. So economists think that inflation expectations is important, and the Fed is an important part, Fed credibility is an important part in keeping it anchored. But here's the thing, you go and you look at surveys, half the people have no idea what the Fed does, like no one. So if you don't know what the Fed does, obviously Fed credibility is not important. So, uh, and it's a good thing too, because if you have 9% inflation, if it was important, it wouldn't be there. So. Um, it does seem that the markets may potentially have great credibility in the Fed. If you look at, um, let's say, market implied measures of inflation, they seem to be coming down towards 2% in the medium term. But you also have to realize that those market-based inflation expectations have been very, very wrong for the past two years. And secondly, a lot of the people who trade them, you know, they don't even really, they, they don't really have any particular insight. A lot of it, for example, is an ETF fund 
who gets inflows from someone's retirement account and just mechanically buys things like uh, tips. So it's not necessarily an enlightened view. You mentioned earlier the total money supply. People disagree about what's the best measure to use. Just out of interest, do you tee off the, a particular release from the Fed for the total money supply or do you do it a different way? So money is a very, you know, it's a term of art. There's, there's no right way to define it. It really depends on what you're trying to do. Usually people think of money as a deposit in a bank. But if you're a retail consumer, that's what money is to you. Deposits in the bank, then that's just M2. Um, if you are a bank yourself, then money is deposits at the Fed. Those are reserves. If you're a huge asset manager, money is treasuries. You know, you can put them up as collateral. You can use them to do trades. You can instantly monetize them into bank deposits by selling them. So what you think of as money really depends on who you are in the financial system. So it, in, in my view, it's not super useful to, to just say, what's the money supply, unless you have a more narrow focus as to what you're trying to achieve. Oh, interesting. It's just that there's a group who I think it's called the Center for Financial Stability, and it's run by a guy whose book I have somewhere. Anyway, he has their their way of measuring the money supply picked up the inflation last year. So I was sort of watching them to to. Uh... I think I think they inc they include things like treasury bills in their money supply. I think. They do. Yes, it's quite a complicated form. I don't fully understand yeah, how it is. He's, yeah. he's a I rocket think, scientist, but yeah, I've never been under. That that's why I always. Uh, I don't pretend to completely understand it, but they were right seeing an expansion in 2021 and you're like, well, this is getting too big. But this is part of what your book goes into, like the financial system. So if you are listening and you are interested, pick up pick up the book because you break down some of these things like bank credit creation and, and quantitative easing. In terms of QE, I mean, that was a what was called unorthodox back in the Bernanke's day. I mean, is that, are these kind of, unorthodox approaches going to be become conventional now and it's just it'll be part of their toolkit forever yeah i think it's already conventional now so um it's not just so the central banking community is actually very close they talk to each other they look at what each other are doing and so the fed did qe during the gfc well the japan had already been doing it before now the ecb does it bank of england does it uh you know everyone even australia does it and this Australians were actually, you know, super experimental and more advanced. They did yield curve control for a little bit too, right? They did, yes. So that's probably the next frontier of uh, monetary policy is just a more yield curve control. Is, the, so, is that not then part of the what we talked about before where the Fed goes Japanese and starts to, you know, pin down, uh, you know, particular, whether it's the 10-year or the 20-year or what have you? So the central banks think of yield control as a better form of QE. And I'll tell you why. So when you're doing QE, you're just basically trying to push interest rates lower by buying a set quantity. So, you know, back back uh, a couple of years ago, let's say 60 billion in treasuries a month. That's your attempt to push down yields. But what kind of effect is that having on yields? I don't know. Um, and there's also side effects as to when you printing a lot of money to buy treasuries, you make the balance sheet of the banking sector larger, uh, which under the current regulatory regime causes some problems for banks. So your objective is to try to push yields lower. You don't know if you're doing it and you have side effects. So that's a bad approach. 
a better approach is yield curve control, which is what, uh, let's say, Vice Chair Brainerd at the Fed has talked about before and what's been done in Japan and Australia. You just say, I want yields to be this level. Okay, then if you do that, then one, you get exactly what you want because the market won't test you. And two, uh, you don't have to do a lot of QE because the market won't test you. You just say it and it's done because the market knows that you have a printer and they won't challenge you. So it's a more, uh, it's perceived to be a more efficient way of doing quantitative easing. If my understanding is that what the Fed used to do in 1940s, either during the war or after the war, and it broke down eventually, I can't remember the reason why, but uh, is that probably well, what will so Back then, they were trying to finance the war, and so they put a ceiling on interest rates just to help with financing it. So I think there's a philosophical struggle where do we have a free market system or do we have more of a centrally planned economy? If you have a free market system, then obviously you would want the market to have a more of a say in what longer-term interest rates would be. Um, but if you have a centrally planned system, you want to be able to tell the markets, hey, I want my interest rates to be X, and thus it would be X. And even if that's not an efficient allocation, then so be it. That's my decision. So it seems that we're transitioning away from, let's say, the more less regulation, less free market system we had, let's say, since the 80s to a more uh, China-like system where everything is going to be more rigorously controlled and dictated from above. And we see that in all aspects of our life. Uh, social media censorship, for example. There are things that you can say and things you can't say, and that applies to markets as well. Um, you kind of have to do this in a sense because otherwise um, you have a very large treasury market. If you don't have more active management, things could go bad very quickly like they did in March 2020. Just as an American, are you worried about the state of America in general? I mean, you've got huge government deficits. I know they can be financed and what have you, but um, lots of debt, uh, gun crime, you know, the massacres that we hear about in other countries is, I mean, we just It's don't not see that it. bad. It's, no, I totally understand that. It's, it's not that bad. So it's a big country. Sometimes people kill each other with guns. Um, so- I was thinking more of the massacres rather than the, just the gun crime, but, the, you know, they're just... There does seem to be this perception that the Demo- there's the Democrat America, there's the Republican America, and they're just constantly at each other. But maybe it's not so bad. Yeah, you, you're the, so, you, you live there. The, so. what, you men- what you mentioned is true. So we have a nation where um, people have different values and, values, and that's becoming a real problem. Um, as you know, people in blue states and red states, they, they, they seem to have want to live life in different ways and have different philosophies and what the government should be. And that's creating a lot of tension. That's, there's actually a really easy way to, to fix that. And that is what the country was normally set up as, and that's federalism. So you people in California, um, you know, you want to ban guns, that's fine. You know, you do your thing. People in Texas, you know, you're your own state, you have your own government, you want to have guns, you guys live the way that you want to live. So that, that seems to be an easy solution, and it's the original solution. And I think it's actually the path towards where we're going right now. So rather than having one group of people enforce their values on another, we let them live their lives as they wish. The easiest way to see that is Roe v. Wade. 
So as you know, there was a tremendous uproar where the Supreme Court says that you do not have a constitutional right to an abortion. And for some weird reason, that was condemned across the entire world. Um, but that, what they're really saying, though, is that this is a very complicated issue. We're going to let the local. We're going to let the local governments decide. So, if you're in Texas and you think that abortion is not good, then hey, let that be your law. And if you're in California and you think you should have as so much of abortion whenever you want, then let that be your law. So, this devolving of decisions from the very highest federal level to more local levels is the essence of federalism and what can allow the United States to continue to survive together. Even though we have, well, we're very polarized, so that that seems to be the direction that we're going. So hopefully that will continue. I'm going to take a guess and say you swing more to the libertarian side of things. Uh, no, I'm not libertarian. I, I swing toward the right of things. I, I think that people should be able to. Oh, listen! The whole point of a government of a nation is people come together to mutually benefit themselves, right? If you're having, if you're having a very polarized nation where by some freak coincidence, some one party can gain control and enforce their will on the other, then you're going to have half the people who are miserable under this government. That's just not the way forward. We want to be able to have people to decide for themselves what they should do and at, at some level, especially the very contentious things. That's how we can stay together as a country that is mutually beneficial to everyone. So federalism, I think, is the easy way forward for the U.S. and hopefully we'll get more of that um, going forward. But if it don't, it is very contentious. And, you know, we've had a civil war before in the 1860s. So um, I hope that doesn't happen again. Well, no, I just, I just mentioned it because part of the monetary debate is tied into this. You have the people who, you know, want the hard money system and, you know, return to the, the old golden days, as they say. And then there's the, the, the more modern interpretation. So, you're interesting to me because I study uh, monetary history too and all sorts of books and things. Um, but you, I think people, when they do that, they tend to go, oh, they gravitate to the gold crowd and like money should be hard money and backed by, <laughs> backed by gold and government should stay out of it, et cetera. Or they go down the Bitcoin route and go, no, this is the, the future and da, da 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 You seem to occupy a bit of a third space where you go, well, this is the system and then you just try and exploit it for its idiosyncrasies you know the word i mean <laughs> you know what i mean you just kind yes, of yes. is that well, fair I, enough I, to I, say like you don't try and put yourself into a bucket is i guess is what i'm saying i think it's important to be able to have solutions for the system it's important to understand it now and i think that 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 is a big part that's a big problem with the debate is that a lot of people don't fully understand how the system currently works and if you fully if you don't fully understand it you misunderstand the problem now, going back to hard money, for example, I think it, the perception is that if you have hard money, then that's more of a constraint for the government. They can't just spend willy-nilly. And, you know, that's actually really important. Being a, being, So, I mean, congressmen are just people and they have their own uh, self-interest. And if you give them a free money printer, then obviously they're, they're tempted to spend it to benefit themselves and their friends. So it's a good idea to have um, some hard money as a constraint on government. But you also have to keep in mind the history. We used to be on hard money, right? And we just devalued it and we just got off the gold standard. And, and, and this happens. <laughs> uh, 
this happens throughout history, even uh, days of Roman times, right? You, you still you had hard money then. Well, we just devalue our currency. So, so what you're saying is it works is, in theory, but in reality, they just go and break. The yeah, yeah, hard money is not a it's it's not the solution. We've had hard money for thousands of years, and this, we ended up without hard money. It's about government. It's about whether or not. Um, it's about how you set up your government because if you, even if you had hard money, people in charge can change the rules. So it's about setting up a system with checks and balances is, is how I think of it. So just to sum up for what we've done here, so we've had a good old chat. So as far as you're concerned, the market has misinterpreted what the Fed's going to do. So we're going to get more rate rises, tighter monetary conditions. What does it take for the market to, if that's going to be what happens, what is it going to be a trigger or does it, is it the next uh, rate rise or What's going to shift the market perception to go, oh, hang on, we've, we've gone too early here. Uh, you know, they're not pulling up. So the what Fed does that future look say, like? I expect Fed to have a lot of speakers coming out, pushing back on the market's narrative. So the problem with the Fed is that, oh, so you want inflation to come down, but if the market thinks you're going to cut rates immediately, then, you know, equity markets rally, people have more money, they're going to start spending, inflation doesn't come down. So what they really need is to have what they would say is financial conditions to tighten. And what that means in real life is that they need asset prices to come down. Now, former president of the New York Fed, Bill Dudley, recently noted, I think just last week, that if basically the equity markets keep going higher, the Fed is going to have hike rates even more aggressively. So in order to fulfill their mandate of price stability to get inflation down, they need asset prices lower. So they're going to keep talking the market down until they get there. I'm just so, curious. So most Americans own houses, right? Not stocks. Well, that's what we're always told or what I've always read. Are they not slamming the housing market? I mean, the, the rise in the rate, mortgage rates is prodigious when you look at it on a chart. Um, or is that just yeah. collateral damage? The mortgage, so about 60-some percent of Americans own a home, and it's a big part of their wealth. That's exactly right. Uh, Americans love stocks, though. That it's you know, like a Canadians love their housing markets. Americans love their stock market. <laughs> so, um, housing prices have come down a bit. Mortgage rates soar to about six percent, and now they've come back. Uh, they're about five percent now. Again, if they if the market thinks you're going to cut rates, then mortgage rates are going to come back down. Housing market reinflates. We're back right. to square zero, right? Square one. Um, Housing prices over the past couple of years have, have gone up tremendously, you know, 20, 30%. They haven't even come close to giving back their gains yet. So I, I think- So you think they've, you know, got, they've not, got room to- They got a lot Fed, of room. Fed's and, got a lot of room. So S&P is at 4,100 today. Uh, Pre-COVID, we we're at like 3,000. So we've got a lot of room on, on all asset fronts for, for it to go down. And listen, inflation at 9%, that's, that's no joke. That's, that's a tremendous, tremendous failure on the part of the Fed, and they're going to work very hard to get back to where they want to be. And do you think that evolves as a, a realization that caused another sharp retracement, or is that a grind down as they just keep sort of choking things? Well, you can't really tell. So it's hard. So, so whether or not declines are precipitous, a lot of that has to do, in my view, on positioning, how well hedged people are. So you could have, a, if it's well telegraphed and well understood, you could have like a slow, slow grind lower. Um, that probably seems more likely, I think. So parts of the market understand that the Fed is not done. And so they're probably prepared for this. Um, 
what I expect to happen in the coming weeks is to have more Fed speakers to come to talk hawkishly, the market to react um, in a negative way, mm. but orderly way. Interesting. Well, Joseph, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. And anyone listening, obviously get the book, but also importantly, uh, sign up at fedguide.com. Is it fedguide.com? Uh, fedguide? Fedguide.com. Yes. I was about to say AU, which is the Australian thing, but of course it's American. <laughs> um because you do, what is it about a monthly piece or do you have a set schedule that you try and hit on that? Or is it just commentary as you see something that you think is relevant? Yeah, I wanted to write things that are interesting to people and there's not always something interesting to write. So I don't want to fill up <laughs> I know your inbox with some stuff that's not interesting. <laughs> so um, if there's something interesting, I write about it. Cool. All right. Well, thank you again. And um, I'd, well, I'm definitely going to keep reading what you're doing. So we'll see how things plan out. But certainly what you're writing makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm grateful for it because you put it out for free. Um, and uh, it's an appropriate warning, I think, just to say this rally may not be sustainable. So, so good on you and keep at it.